0: Well, we are here today beginning our first class of the 16-week series of Healing of America, and this seminar is called God's Hand in Building of America. So when I say 16 weeks, there are actually four seminars within the 16-week series, and the first one, the first little book is called God's Hand in Building of America, and there are four sections in that seminar. And once we will cover one section each week, so it'll take four weeks to go through this seminar of God's hand in building of America. And so, if you don't have the manuals now, I would highly recommend going to our Moms for America store and purchasing them. I think you can get them on sale right now. I think the four workbooks is it Z for yes, you get a discount forty nine dollars. Yeah. I think they're typically $20 a piece if you buy them singly, but if you buy all four books now, it'll be $50. I'm telling you, those little books will be treasures to you. I have been through these Healing of America seminars probably a dozen times now. And I feel like I, the first couple of times uh, I went through, I, it's just like drinking from a, a you know, fire hose. It was just trying to take it all in. It's kind of like reading the Bible. You know, the first time you read it, you don't quite really remember what you had just read. You know, the week before. But as you have a continuous study of being in the Word through your whole life, it, you begin to understand God's hands and how He will work in your life. And um, I I believe, you know, the material that we're going to be learning over the next 16 weeks is really akin (laughs) to scripture in some ways, because it's a part of the gospel of freedom and knowing how to maintain freedom and liberty. And God knew that, you know, we couldn't worship him or, you know, live the gospel of, of Jesus Christ without being in an environment of maximum freedom where the spirit of God is, there's liberty, All right? You have to have freedom in order to be able to worship him. So I say the gospel of freedom and the gospel of Jesus Christ go hand in hand. And so... I really think once a year, we should go through these Healing of America seminars. And so many mamas have taken them back to back. I've, sometimes I've taught this Healing of America seminar three times in a year. And I've known some of the moms that have just taken it, you know, two or three times that year to really walk it in and then and then to continually be studying together. And, and this is the power of meeting together online for little cottage study, cottage meetings for study groups or in home. And I will talk, over the next 16 weeks about, you know, what is these study groups, these cottage meetings, and it's all a part of assuring shoring you up in the gospel of freedom so that you can ensure that you can worship in a maximum environment of freedom, your God, all right, and so this is how what we learn is going to, uh, is going to ensure that we can live according to the dictates of our own heart and our own conscience, and God, so anyways, You'll want to get the manuals. We're going to start on manual number one, section one today. And let's just start, um, Z is is the the first heading. Let's see where we are in our slideshow. Oh, first of all, I just want to introduce my family. I'm a mother of five children, actually seven. Two little boys died in infancy. They're my favorites. So I always have to do a shout out to my two boys in the heavens. Uh, We're a beautiful, colorful family. My husband and I have been married 30 years. Our oldest is married. Her hubby is on the end there, the the white guy, the other white dude in the family, we call him. And then the rest of my kitties range from 28 on down to the baby who is 15. She is a freshman in high school. She's the only one living at home right now. All the other kids have have scattered to the four winds doing really interesting things. You will learn about my kids. You'll hear me talk about my kids. My kids have been the guinea pigs for everything that I have learned at Moms for America and come home and taught them. And the fruits have been quite remarkable. The kids are not angels, so don't think they are. But these are children who have been taught to love God and to love America and to love freedom in our country. And they are really doing quite wonderful things out the world. So having said that, that's the family. You know, I think we're all here today because we are worried about our rising generation. We're worried about our children and our grandchildren. And we want our children and our grandchildren to be a part of the solution, not the problem. Over 15 years ago, I was living in a small town called Hood River, Oregon. And I I was worried about what my uh, oldest girl at the time who was 13, what she was being taught in her middle school. And so Glenn Beck had a program and he held up this book one day in his show. And he said, mothers, you need to get together and uh, uh, start a book group and learn these 28 principles upon which our nation was founded. And you need to teach them to your children because the the kids aren't learning, you know, these faith stories and these principles anymore. So this is what we did in that small town of Hood River, Oregon. We, We mamas got together once a month. And we'd just go through two or three principles each time we met for an hour or two hours. And then inevitably, all of us mothers went home and began to teach what we were learning in our little study group to our children. And I began to see how this transformed me as a mother to learn and study these ideas and these stories and miracles of America. It changed the way that I taught my children. It, it impacted my marriage. My husband and I began to do do some things differently together that we're still doing today and it definitely raised my confidence and ability to talk to school teachers a little bit differently or talk to neighbors or family members about you know uh, events going on in the world And, and it even would lead me to you know go to school board meetings and to testify before school board meetings. And I was able to speak not on emotion, but on principle. And when you speak on principle, you always have the advantage because principles are eternal. They uh, transcend party and politics. And this is what we're gonna learn today in the next 15 and a half weeks, Uh, these principles of liberty upon which this nation was founded. Now we know uh, that, you, you know, our country is, um, these are difficult times and our particularly our children, they're suffering, they're coming off of COVID. I just talked to a little fourth grade school teacher who teaches in Alexandria, Virginia uh, a few days ago. And she said, I don't know what is going on, but the children are really struggling. And my other um, peers, my other teachers are noticing this as well. And so particularly you know as they get into the the middle schools and they're trying to just figure out uh, who they are and there's fear and there's anxiety and there's depression and and I I have taught uh, this and I'll uh, will continue to teach this uh, through the next 16 week series and also through the cottage meeting series that we're gonna start in another month from now, but these these four points of being knowing how to anchor, your children and your grandchildren in hope when you know a, a lot of kids are suffering right now in this country that uh, we we teach them that look first of all mamas and grandmothers we have to go to God we don't look to government we don't look to programs we don't look to you know to those kind of things we go to God when we are struggling we go to God for solutions and deliverance and we go to the word and then we're going to keep that, our families close, and we're going to teach our take our children and our grandchildren to god we're going to be praying with them we're going to be studying verse and i teach uh we'll talk about uh, in these online cottage meetings how do you teach your littles or your middles or your adult children uh you know how to go to god and how to turn to him for healing and solutions and not to outside uh you know sources or programs And then we um, study the Constitution, we study the miracles and the stories of America from the viewpoint of our founding uh, fathers, our founding fathers and mothers who struck who say that these documents was struck off by the hand of God and, and so we study it from their viewpoint and this is why it's so important we we learn it because you know we're not historians and we're not legal scholars. And you know, I, I think most mo- mothers wouldn't say they're even qualified to teach the Constitution. But you will be, I promise you. By the end of the 16-week uh, class, you are going to have enough of the knowledge to begin to teach and to defend the Constitution that our founders intended for this nation to have, and and um, and the principles upon which we really flourished the first hundred years of of our country and then how, as we have veered away from them, how our country is, you know, is, is becoming unhinged really. And so, and then lastly, that fourth point, if you'll do those three things, and if you, as you continue to come to class and to learn and to study each week, you will know what to do. Cause we all have to do our part in order to justify the heavens to intervene. And God says he will but we have to be up and doing something. It doesn't have to be big, but if all of us are doing our little parts, mostly starting within the four walls of our home and with our extended family, and then it will ripple out into our communities and our schools and our state and even our nation. Now, today we are going to talk about people that were anchored in hope, that were anchored in God. And they were brave and they were God led and they made, uh, you know, difficult decisions and God tasked them to do difficult things, but they rose up and they did it. And these are the stuff, uh, the first uh, seminar, the next four weeks tells some beautiful faith inspired stories. Mamas, it's so important. You get these stories in you because it's the stories that you share with your children that plant the seeds, that give them a, a reservoir, a depth. When they will have to have the courage to to speak up in the schoolroom or to endure a struggle, they will remember these stories of Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and our founding fathers, these stories we're really going to talk about the next four weeks, particularly, and it will give them, uh, you know, an anchor to move forward and Joan of Arc did it, maybe I can do it kind of thing. And so we're going to, we're in our foreword of our, the first section of our manual right now. Now, I just want to give you a little background about who wrote these seminars. He's by a man by the name of Cleon Skousen. And he was an author and an educator. He was actually a chief uh, police, chief police and worked for the FBI, uh, uh, um, an attorney. He uh, was associated with presidents. There was a a room named after him in Ronald Reagan's presidential library in Simi, California. He had a meeting with the Pope. We, I, I talk about some of his experiences and he's written many um, bestsellers. He wrote this Healing of America seminar. I just want you to know these, these seminars, each book usually takes about 12 hours to get through. If you've teach it, you go, you read it and you fill in the blank because the, the, the seminars are fill in the blanks. The keys are at the back of the book. So I'm going to give you homework each week. You get to go through and fill in the blanks because instead of teaching, taking eight to 12 hours to teach each seminar, I'm only going to teach them in four hours, one hour for four weeks. And so I will go through a, a verse by verse, word by word, Uh, And and there's some beautiful material there that we won't cover, but I will teach ultimately what it would look like if you were to teach this with four or five women in your home, how you would just read a paragraph or two and then stop and discuss, read the next three paragraphs, fill in the blank, stop and discuss. I'm going to give you an overview each week of each section, however, just to kind of move this along as this is already a 16-week class. But I love how Cleon Skousen, who, uh, you know, was was not pessimistic of, at all he he would say even though you know the last several decades probably last 50 sixty de- uh, not fifty last five or six decades of America as we have pulled God out of the school system we've seen a decline in morality a decline in school scores because we're're we're, we're not we're not invoking God and religion and morality though religion and morality did you know our founders wanted those two things along with knowledge, those three things taught in the school systems because they knew, or our founders knew, that is the only way we could maintain this type of government, this Republican government based on the voice of the people, if people remain morally strong and virtuous and connected to the heavens. So as we've moved away from that, the school systems, we've seen a decline, overall decline uh, in, in morality and, and health and well being of our younger generations. But even still, Cleon Skousen said, I think the soul of America is going to be cleansed by events that will humble our nation and put us back on our knees. And you know, when you're humbled is when you're more willing to look up and talk to God. And he said, I'm a believer in that promise in 2 Chronicles 7:14." And I, you might, not already, you might already know this verse, but I love this verse where it says, if my people in 2 Chronicles 7:14, uh, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, And I sometimes think our wicked ways are just apathetic ways. We're just distracted and checked out. If they will repent and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That is the promise that uh, Cleon Skousen mentions in this first forward in the book. And I believe that. And look, God doesn't need a majority of people doing that before he can intervene. He just needs enough. He just needs enough mamas waking up to the fact that they we've got to do more. We've got to teach with more brilliance or precision some of these principles in our home and to the people that we love. And it will justify God to intervene and to begin to heal our homes and our communities and ultimately our nation. And so so um, Skousen says, you know, of course I know people are going to just mock uh, uh, and laugh at this scripture here. But he said, you know, our wicked ways includes our crimes and our abortions and our political corruption and drugs. He said there will be a crisis and a cleansing that will turn the people from their wicked ways and put us on our knees. And, but he said, look, we don't need to be pessimists. We just need families to do whatever they can to put their house in order because our homes are what is going to be a refuge at this time in the world and in our country right now from the storms and the coming storms, because you can kind of see and feel them. I don't think you would be here today if, if you were not feeling that trouble is brewing here. He said, it is the love between family, between parents, grandparents, children, um, That is the supreme formula for this kind of security. Whenever I find families struggling to build bonds of trust and love, I know they are paying the dividends for the kind of insurance that ultimately will hold them together. So look, I think we can all say it is not easy raising children and grandchildren right now. We are struggling. Our There's marriages that are struggling. Children are coming to us with revelations that are shocking and we're, we're just, we're worried. But if we will show God that we're willing to show up and to learn and to pray, and even if no one will join you in the house to pray, they see mama dropping to her knees praying, you know, and if, if we're willing to try and pay those kind of dividends, God will intervene and he will help shore up uh, our, our children, our family and, and ripple on out into our communities and, and nation. And so I love how Cleo uh, people will say, you know, oh, why are you so optimistic? And he said, because I've read the book. And in the end, we win. God prevails. We have to remind ourselves, in the end we win we might be losing battles every day i look at the newspaper the washington post i'm like good grief i mean could it get any worse but in the end we win we win we win the war god prevails as long as we do our part and this is why we're here today and this is why we're going to be committed to 16 weeks of learning how we can be a part of the solution of healing our families Our our homes, our communities, and ultimately America. So the the seminar is four parts. This first part is God's hand in building of America, and this is what we're starting on today. The second seminar, we will do a, a dive into the Constitution. All right, and we will learn what our founders gave us and what has come since our founders that has caused disruption of balance of power. After seminar two, you will know more about the constitution than most people in this country, most men and women in Congress. So I will break the constitution down and teach the leading fe- features of the constitution that matter the most to mothers and to grandmothers and to families because the constitution was written to protect the families because our founders knew you have strong families, you'll have strong societies, you have strong societies, you'll have a strong nation, all right? And so we've lost a side of that because no one speaks about the constitution from that vantage or viewpoint, but we will in seminar number two. Seminar number three will be weeks. uh, What will that be? week? eight, nine, 10, 11. Uh, we'll talk about the unhinging of America, why we are in the mess that we are now. In, uh, and we're living, we're living seminar three right now. It'll strike a very familiar chord. And sometimes when I teach seminar three, I have to go to my closet with a bucket of ice cream because it's a little depressing. <laughs> but the wonderful thing about seminar four is it's so hopeful because it's all about solutions. So many people nowadays don't solutions, they just talk about what is wrong with America. A lot of speakers, a lot of people in Congress, a lot, they just, I mean, they like have PhDs in what the potholes are, what the problems are. No one has solutions. At Moms for America, we have solutions. And this Healing of America seminar is just full of solutions. And I think that's what's so empowering. And really, this seminar will give you the bedrock foundation of history of what has gone wrong and what we can do to heal America. And, and it's really empowering to, to get this knowledge and information under your belt. And so um, anyways, we're really having Mamas, our 1776 moment right now, where we feel like, holy cow, the world is upside down. What can I do to be a part of this? And we can see that we're losing our children. They're being sold a bill of lies really in the school systems and the universities on social media. They're, they're being told that their identity is rooted in their sexual identity, that they should lead with pronouns or that they're perpetual victims of racism and discrimination and they're entitled to all sorts of things. And young people are looking really, they're, I believe they're looking like we all are for acceptance and identity and happiness and hope but they're looking in the wrong places and ultimately we know that true peace and happiness and optimism and hope is found in your understanding of your true identity that is sons and daughters of god i don't know if any of you had a chance to see the new movie that came out about a month ago called the jesus revolution it is so good I would recommend it might not be in theaters anymore because any movies about Jesus stay in the movie theaters about two weeks where I live in Washington, D.C., but you will be able to stream it. But it shows the counter revelation to the sex sex, drugs and rock and roll in the 60s and 70s and how this Jesus revolution came through. And I really think it so parallels our day to day because kids are looking, you know, for acceptance in the wrong places. And we just have to... To know that when they come to us, our doors are open because ultimately, they're what they're seeking can only be found in truth, in, in God, and inspired stories and heroes of the past. So I would recommend getting that Jesus Revolution down. I, we went and took some of our kids, and they all loved it. And we're seeing this swing uh, of these revivals that are are you know um, are coming up around the country. We, the one that i probably we've all seen in in kentucky that asbury university where these kids for 13 days just showed up in a, 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 a kind of like a a concert hall or something and they would pray and sing and no adults were leading it they were just drawn there because they know that what what the world is teaching young people is is diabolical it's really evil all you have to do, if I don't know if any of you, sorry, I'm getting off on a little tangent, watch the Academy Awards Oscars on Sunday. My 15 year old daughter wanted to watch it. We, we, our family came home from a little ch- church function late that night. So she's like, mom, will you watch it with me? It was 9.30 at night. And I, I, I don't know, I, I didn't even recognize any of the movies that were being up for awards except for Top Gun. And there was one movie that, Sweeped all the awards and I asked someone about it and they said it was the most uh, anything everywhere all the time won the best movie of the year and, and won a lot of awards and they said it was the most odd perverse uh, it, they said if that is the best movie of the year we're we're in trouble. And so you know young people are are they they're seeking and they're being told that you know these are award winning worthy of our attendance and even the commercials during the academy awards i don't know if you watched the commercials uh, it was all about promoting uh, uh, the LGBT community and various levels of uh, immorality and um, transgenderism. And I was actually glad I was watching the Academy Awards with my 15 year old, because we had a lot of discussion about, about what was Hollywood is trying to peddle on to our children. And, and so anyways, today we are going to study uh, figures from history that are the true heroes, that these are the stories that we wanna write upon our children. So let's turn to the very first section, the events and the people who prepared the way for freedom, that really prepared the way. You might not even make the connection to Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and and the pilgrims probably so, in in, when, you know, leading, God leading them, inspiring them uh, to, to the discovery of this new world. So let's start right off the bat, how the Crusades led to the discovery of America. The Crusades began around 1100 um, AD and they they, they were undertaken to liberate the Holy Lands from the Muslims. Now the Crusaders were Christian soldiers who massacred and pillaged in the name of God. So, you know, even Christians don't get things right throughout history. God help them. And they were not successful in this 300 year crusade. But what they did do is they um, made contact during these crusades with Mediterranean people, the Arabs especially, and it introduced Europeans to the luxuries of the Fari spices, rugs, fabrics, jewelry, perfume. And um, at first, Europeans began to purchase these kind of things they wanted, these things through the Arabs. But ultimately, these merchants, um, uh, merchants began to discover the trade routes both on land and sea uh, for themselves so there was a lot of exploration in the world going on uh, during this time and up comes a wonderful figure let's see the next slide z of marco polo do you remember marco polo as a young boy he went with his daddy on uh, to explore these trade routes he was gone he left at the age of 17 with his father and he did not return back to his home for 20 years. And he would go on to write a book uh, with all the description of his travels and all these fabulous riches of China uh, that he had discovered over the course of these 20 years. And people were anxious to establish trade routes so they could uh, have access to these things. Isn't it interesting? Um, Marco Polo would write a book called um, The Marvels of the World. And Christopher Columbus, 200 years later, would read that book and be inspired by the travels of Marco Polo. And we'll talk about Christopher uh, Columbus in a moment. So during this time period, the 11, 12, 13, 1400s, there was this ongoing search of freedom going on in England and France and Spain. Let's just talk about what was going on, first of all, in England. The English were about, um, were just about the only Americans or the Europeans who uh, were able to preserve some of the basic institutes of the Anglo-Saxon culture under people's law. Now, I just have to tell you, if you never heard of the Anglo-Saxon uh, culture or civilization, many people believe uh, the Anglo-Saxons were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel that were scattered clear back to 700 BC when the Assyrians conquered Israel and the 10 tribes were scattered and we never really know where they went. But the interesting <laughs> one, those lost tribes of Israel um, began to establish people's law, which was only found under the law of Moses, common law. And so they believe, that's why they believe that these Anglo-Saxons were descendants of um, the Lost Tribes because for about, uh, I think about 450 AD to almost 1000 AD, um, the Anglo-Saxon community lived under people's law until um, the Vikings came and conquered them, the Norman Conquest. I just have to say, because I'm always looking for interesting things to watch, on Netflix, there's a series called The Last Kingdom and it's based on Bernard Cornwall's The Saxon Stories. And it talks about the, the Anglo-Saxons versus that time period versus the, the Vikings who were kind of fierce pagan barbarian pirates who came down from Denmark. It's a five season uh, series that's a little X-rated in certain parts. You have to you know cover your eyes and I probably wouldn't watch with children but it's, it kind of is, uh, it, it depicts that period in time, the Anglo-Saxons. And it's just, put that on your bucket list to watch, maybe. It might, it might be a little too shocking for you. So I'm just throwing, just throwing it out there because it, it depicts this time period, the Anglo-Saxons. So the Anglo-Saxons were, were conquered uh, in about 1066 by the Vikings, and the Vikings um institute brought elements of ruler's law, all right, which is, it's it's a harsher law where, you know, all power is in, you know, a king, so to speak. And the Anglo-Saxon system of people's law began to be uh, corrupted. By 1215 in England, these oppressive policies of the Normans had become so intolerable, uh, even to the, the Norman, Normans themselves, that the English barons rebelled against King John. Does this sound familiar? And they forced him to sign the famous Magna Carta, in which they itemized some of their rights. Now, the Magna Carta is, is there a slide there, Z, for that? Um, uh, Our founders ultimately would pull some of the phrases from the Magna Carta associated with freedom and embed them into our, uh, there's John, King John signing the Magna Carta. It's known as the Magnificent Charter. Okay, so let's look uh, uh, at France. What was going on during this time period, the search for freedom in France. In the early 1400s, Let's see the next slide. There was a major war going on between England and France. England had invaded France to such a degree that they had dethroned the king of France and the the crown prince called the Dauphin uh, was in hiding and France was in a complete state of chaos. Little did France know that they were going to be rescued by a little teenage girl who was the age of thirteen at that point, fourteen twenty five, and that God was going to give her the power to liberate her country. Joan of Arc is her name. That she was just came from a you know humble little uh, small peasant family, farmer. Her, her father was a farmer. They were poor. Uh, but they were um, a, a godly family she was known to be a pious child and often you could find little Joan in the church absorbed in prayer and she loved the poor tenderly at the age of 13 in the summer uh, of uh, 1425 she began to hear voices counseling her and kind of, uh, teaching her what her uh, assignment and mission was going to be. And over the course of three years, she actually began to see them. They would come to her in a blaze of light. And she said that it was St. Michael. St. Michael is a patron saint that is actually mentioned in the book of Revelation and Jude and Daniel, and also um, St. Margaret and St. Catherine. And these are two women that died about 300 AD, but they were prominent, beautiful, righteous, godly women that were Um, uh, I I think it was St. Catherine that was killed at a young age for not denying her faith. I would study St. Margaret and St. Catherine, but these are the people that came to her to kind of begin to shore her up and to teach her about the mission that God had for her. Ultimately, when Joan was questioned, let's go back to that that previous slide, um, she would say that I saw them with my very eyes as i see you now when she was about 16 years old um her these voices they began to become more urgent and insistent that she was going to have to lead her country to freedom Uh, and so she was to go present herself to a man by the name of robert bodricourt i'm not sure if i'm saying that right but he was the captain of the royal guard uh, of the French military at that time. And he was really a brute of a man and he didn't respect women. So when little Joan at 16 came to her, he uh, said, take her home to her father and good, give her a good whipping. He didn't pay her any attention. And so in the meantime, um, things are starting to look quite desperate for France, Orle- Orleans, Orleans, I'm not saying that right either. I've been there in France, but. Orlean, or Orlean, we'll just say New Orleans, Orland was raided in 1428. And her voices became urgent and even threatening to her. And she said, oh, look, now for three years, you know, she's been talking and they've been teaching her. But she said, I'm just a poor girl. I don't even know how to ride a horse or fight. I don't, I don't she didn't even know how to read or write, you know, let alone, you know, lead men into battle. And so they reiterated to her that it is God who is commanding that you do this, Joan. And so she yielded at last. And she went again to this Robert Bodry village. And um, I just think sometimes in life when God puts upon our hearts that we need to do certain things. We're like Joan of Arc, like, Lord, I cannot do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't want to do this. It's just like Joan. I don't even know how to ride a horse. But when God puts upon our hearts to speak up and just and to teach and to show up and to do something, we have to be like little Joan and just do it. And so the, her voices taught her at, at this young age to be, to dress like a male and and it really as a protection to her modesty because she undoubtedly was going to now begin to go into the rough um, life of uh, camp and soldiers. and they even um, so she always slept fully dressed and two layers of clothes. And they even taught her how to um, tie little ropes around her loin area uh, to protect her virtue. And so, um, and and it's believed that Court actually did take her to the king because she said, I know where the prince Adolphin is. And if you do not let me see the king, I will tell everyone where that prince is. And so, uh, she was led into the king, uh, March 6th, in Chinon, and the king actually disguised himself, it was Charles the VII, uh, and just to see if this girl really knew, you know, what was going on, he disguised himself, but she immediately, as she entered into where he was, went to him, saluted him without hesitation, and, um, and, and really, most of the Uh, the court at this point knew of her and they just viewed her as a crazy visionary but what she did to Charles she uh, made known to him a secret sign that was communicated to her by her voices and she shared that with the king in the writings, some have said they believe that she almost verbatim shared with him the prayer that he had had almost the night before or recently with God petitioning god and that she repeated that prayer so that got the attention of the king and he kind of half-heartedly had to believe in her at this point point. and so little joan at 16 now was employed into military operations making preparation to go to war and uh, the king was going to outfit her with uh, you know all the paraphernalia and she said, I want the sword that can be found in the church of St. Catherine, because I love her so. And the, and St. Catherine had told her, go to the church, my church. There's a church, the St. Catherine church. And there told her where the sword was hidden. And that is the sword that Joan used as she went into battle. And she said, and she also uh, made a, a standard bearer, a flag. And Uh, And the flag contained a picture of Jesus and Maria with um, uh, kneeling angels and then uh, a flower, the French symbol, the flower of light. And Joan would say, I love my sword because I found it in the Church of St. Catherine, who I love. But she said, more than that, I love my banner 40 times over. And she carried that little banner with her wherever she went with her enemies so she entered into the campaign and guess what? They took back the city of Orleans uh, on the 30th of April. And then they went on to Rams and Troy. I know I'm slaughtering <laughs> these names. And um, and ultimately the king was able, uh, Charles Seventh, was able to be reinstated. Now at this point, she, she thought, okay, I've accomplished my mission. Let me just go home. But the the officers pleaded with her to stay because there were some cities, uh, um, Burgundy, that needed shoring up. You know, it's interesting the way um, Joan of Arc led. Now, in those times during war, the commanders would lead from behind, okay? They never led in front like George Washington did. But Joan of Arc led in front instead of hanging in the back as was customary at that time. And some... Uh, mocked her and said, no one is going to follow you. And she said, I will not be looking back that she was going to move forward. And I love that as mothers, sometimes, you know, we say and we teach things and our children are rolling their eyes or people are being critical. And we just have to have the fortitude and the still in our spine to keep moving forward, knowing that we have been inspired (laughs) to do and say certain things. And um, it's so interesting. I I was just talking to my daughter who's 28 years old. She's married. Last night, she came over. She does all my PowerPoints. And she said, I said, honey, tell me that story again about Joan of Arc. And she said, yeah, when I was about 14, 15, you told me that story of Joan of Arc. And and she said, this is my 28-year-old daughter last night recalling how when I taught her the story of Joan of Arc. She said, I remember you telling me that story. And I thought it was, she said this, it was the lamest story I've ever heard, mom. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know about that story. And then wouldn't you know, a little while later, she was asked to um report on Joan of Arc in church. They had a little activity in the in youth group that everyone was gonna um report on um, a godly person from history, and she was assigned Joan of Arc. And so she said, Mom, remember you helped me, and I don't really remember this, but she said you helped me put together the little report and then uh, all the parents came for a little uh, presentation night and she said when I presented on Joan of Arc she said I don't know if you can remember but I couldn't stop crying because I felt as if she was there right next to me and she said I will never forget that experience and this is a little girl now she's 28 years old that has traveled all over the world now and and lived for several years and in a third world country, and it was so hard for her. And now she works uh, representing 56 African nations, helping them understand their history and, and, and their true identity. And so it's almost like she needed to have this experience for the work that God is having her do right now. So just know, mamas and grandmas, when you teach your children these stories, and it's an, not a one-time teaching you will share these stories over and over while they're in your home that at the time they might be rolling their eyes you know and you think that, <laughs> that that they could care less but those seeds will be planted and these stories will rise up in them in their of need and allow them to do the work that God is desperately going to need them to do moving forward in the future you know, the amazing thing about Joan of Arc was the way that she led. She knew at this young age that oh, only moral people would fight for God. Maybe that's why he called a young virgin, you know, virtuous girl. But as as was customary uh, in those days and, and all throughout history, that when there was war, women would travel with the soldiers in their camps and give them sexual favors, prostitutes in the evening. But Joan of Arc told these women, you will either leave now or you will die. And she told the men that it was not honored. They were being dishonorable uh, to, to be engaged in these kind of activities. And if they were not going to honor their wives, then they would be sent home. She did not want them fighting with her. And this was truly the standard that Joan of Arc set that when you were in the army of freedom, you are in God's army and immorality and vulgarity just cannot be tolerated and it's so interesting that 300 years later George Washington would establish the same military code of conduct that he no doubt as you know, as he had read about Joan of Arc. um, A lot of the information, the sources uh, of where I'm getting my information, a lot of them can be found in the Catholic Encyclopedia of Joan of Arc. And also, um, Mark Twain wrote a wonderful book of Joan of Arc. He said that was his most favorite piece of uh, literature that that he wrote. It took him, I think, 10 to 12 years to research it and two years to write um, of this. It, it's interesting to note that about 30 years ago, we have moved away from this code of military contact, conduct. Under, I think it was President Clinton, he uh, introduced that don't ask, don't tell uh, policy for our US military. And then about 20 years later, under President Obama in 2011, he ended don't ask, don't tell, meaning you can uh, exercise all kinds of levels of morality in the military, just don't let anyone know about it. President Obama eliminated that policy and now you could be openly gay or uh, bisexual or lesbian. And then just a year and a half ago under President Biden, it was one of the first things he did when he was put into office is he allowed for transgenders to serve openly in our military, to provide hormone therapies and mental health uh, care and, and even surgeries. The the Secretary of Defense, his name is Lloyd Austin, recently said trans rights are human rights. So this is the moral code that we're operating now in our military. And it, it would seem as we veer away from the godly code, godly law, we don't have the protection of God anymore and i think we're seeing we're seeing that in our nation in our country and in our some of our military pursuits but this military code of conduct started with Joan bark and and um, george washington followed in her example and so anyways joan the voices told joan in the spring of uh what was it 14 28 29 that she was going to be um taken uh and captured by the enemies and they warned her, and sure enough, she was. And she was sold by the English, uh, a Frenchman who was a traitor. And King Charles um, was devastated to hear this, and he loved her dearly. And he tried ev- in every way, it's written, to get her back. But she was sold to the English. Now, the last thing the English wanted to do was to create this hero out of Joan of Arc because. They already feared her. There was like was superstitious terror that this young girl was able to do what what she did. And so they um, decided that they would try her in a church court instead of a secular court. Although she was held in a secular prison where depraved men were guarding her. And she complained that I should be put in a a church prison then if you're going to try me in a church court. So, 70 uh, propositions of her crimes were put forth, and they said that look, if she would just deny that she had heard seen visions or heard voices that they were uh, of the devil and that they were false, they would release her, and she, of course, would not deny that. And so she was tried as a heretic, someone who was um, uh, contrary to the opinions of the church and deemed uh, you know, an outcast, even maybe a lesbian for cross-dressing or a heretic or a witch. And so she uh, was burned at the stake, but before she was, she requested that she um, take off her military garb and wear a white dress, symbolizing her virtue and her morality. And it was said that even um, her enemies uh, were, were drawn to tears. Her bitter enemies uh, 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 with her demeanor at the stake, they were moved to tears because she held this little cross in her, uh, to her chest and clear up till her last you know, breath, she declared that her voices came from God and that she had not been deceived Then her ashes were thrown into the Seine River so that the grave would be unknown and unmarked so her life could go unhonored. This was what they were hoping. Now, 24 years after her death, there was a revision of her trial, a rehabilitation, if you will, of her reputation. And and indeed, she would go on to become um, declared a saint. Um, Can I see the next slide, Z? There is the best, little, it's like a one hour uh, little documentary or a movie of Joan of Arc. And you can find it, just, just Google Joan of Arc BYU TV. I think a couple of religious universities went together to collaborate to put out uh, this movie, I watched it with my 15 year old recently, and she's like, "Mom, that was so good," you know, because she's 15. And Joan of Arc was, you know, uh, she Joan of Arc would die at 19. But it's wonderful. It's free. Just Google it. You can stream it and watch it tonight, pops some popcorn. And you know, this can is so hard to find any quality viewing nowadays. This is a great. It will keep the attention of uh, your children, probably ages eight to 18, I I would think it's um, wonderful. So the important thing you need to understand about Joan of Arc, look, she saved her country, France, and 350 years later, France would come and save America from the last battle in the Revolutionary War at Yorktown. It was the French army that came and allowed us to win that last battle and ultimately win the war. If there had not been a Joan of Arc, there would not have been a France to come and save us 350 years later, okay? So that is the the connection of Joan of Arc and establishing, help establish uh, this this, uh, America and the new world uh, and become a a country. Okay, so, um, woo! We might just go a little bit over today. We're we're pound three or Christopher Columbus. Uh, uh, Christopher Columbus was inspired by Marco Polo. And he wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. Now he will say he went to King Ferdinand and um, Isabella for a thousand years in Spain. They had been at war um, uh, with um, Muslim, the Moors, Muslims in the Middle East and this last muslim ruler of granada came and he surrendered to isabella uh, a queen and king isabella and fernand and so this was almost a thousand year conflict and so this was in 1492 and it it said that the king and queen were humbled by this this uh, victory that all they known was this war And so it had sufficiently softened their hearts so when christopher columbus came to them and requested that they fund his voyage to go and explore these trade routes that they granted him the money and the ships to do so now what christopher columbus didn't really tell them because he had just he knew 50 years earlier joan of arc had been burned at the stake for hearing voices and following god but as a young boy christopher columbus said He heard the voice of God and other voices from the Old Testament telling him that he was going to be a part of finding other sheep that were not of this fold and that he was going to find them. And, uh, you know, I think he originally told them, uh, you know, the King and Queen of Spain that, you know, he was going to try and discover better routes to Japan and China for trading. But ultimately, he considered those, China and Japan, just stepping stones to this land of other sheep, which are not of my fold. That is mentioned in the uh, New Testament in John 10, 16. And so he would go on to tell, you know, after coming back from, uh, there was four voyages that Christopher Columbus took to discover these other sheep. And he would tell the king and queen that he was led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do what he did. Now, he died young. The first voyage, he landed in what is now known as Haiti. Then he left the group of men there, and then went back. He had four voyages, so a lot of you know the, the mischief and, and trouble that occurred with the natives were the men that he left there, and he and he writes that in his writings. He feels badly, uh, you know, uh, uh, of some of the ways that the natives um, were were uh, treated. But it's interesting, you know, how Christopher Columbus has been so maligned uh, in history. Um you know, we used to have Christopher Columbus Day. We don't really even call it that anymore. It's called Indigenous People Day. And in in recently, in the past few years, we see statues of him coming down uh, around the country. They're being vandalized. There's a big statue in front of our big train station in Washington, DC. It was vandalized uh, a few years ago, spray painted and accusing Christopher Columbus of the genocide, being a terrorist, you know, destroying national ethnic and, and religious and uh, racial groups. And, um, and, and it's interesting, let's see the next slide. I like these books that talk about his life. He really felt what he was doing. He was being directed by God as a young boy to go and to begin to discover this this western part of the world that had largely been hidden from the world. Little did he know that in just about a hundred years time there were now going to be English settlements that would come Jamestown and Plymouth that would ultimately lead the way to the establishment of America. And so I really like the light the glory book here is um, written by the son of the senate chaplain in the 50s and 60s and it, it, it talks a lot about christopher columbus the pilgrim hypothesis book is by timothy ballard that came out in about 2019 i like how he talks about christopher columbus he doesn't try and paint him as a perfect man but his intentions were pure and they were of god and so i really like if you google uh, the plymouth hypothesis timothy ballard he gives like a one-hour lecture on it that you can listen to that I think is really interesting. And my most favorite book on Christopher Columbus, it's only 30 pages. It's this man or myth, man of God. And you can get it through the Kimber Academy, no, KimberCurriculum.org. Maybe see you can put that in there. I think it's only like 10 bucks. And I just love if, if you will just read that, because you know, Christopher Columbus has been so been misrepresented in the line. But in all the sources of where they get this Christopher Columbus Columbus himself wrote a book and it's hard to get and it's kind of expensive I wouldn't buy that book but I like a couple hundred dollars. But so people you know it's just hard to get the true faith story of Christopher Columbus it's certainly in the school systems you know how he's portrayed as you know the worst dude in the world kind of thing. But um, once again, he was inspired of God to discover this land. And then uh, shortly thereafter, in uh, 1607, England starts sending. So um, I just skipped over how, you know, for the next, and Christopher Columbus died as a young man uh, at 55 and oh, so he had only been going back and forth for about 12 years and he would die. But what it did is it would open up the country of, of Spain uh, with um, Cortez, let's see the next slide, with Pizarro and Cortez and Ponce de Lyons and De Soto. So, you know, um, if, if the 1500s belonged to the Spanish in exploring and in discovering parts of the Western hemisphere, The 1600s, starting the early mid 1500s to the 1600s belonged to France. Let's see that next slide. Uh, In 1534, uh, uh, we got uh, Jacques Cartier. Am I saying that right? Let's see the next slide. He uh, from France would um, discover Chino Falls and a city was ultimately built around that, Montreal, Canada. So, uh, and then in the early 1600s, two French explorers, Dassault and let's see, who's the other one? Anyways, they would go on to uh, found New Orleans at the mouth of the Mississippi River. They traveled the full length of the river. So so we see the French are now starting to come about. 80,000 settlers along the waterways, French settlers begin to control the heartland of North America and uh making impossible for the spanish to proceed uh proceed further but fortunately the spanish began to become very busy in discovering gold and silver in mexico and south america so they weren't really pressing into north america at this time in history And the the French government um, in the uh, late 1500s, 1600s didn't really have a representative form of government. They kind of too were establishing like more harsh rulers law where, you know, only one or two king is in charge, so to speak. But they were kind of distracted with uh, disagreements and deadlocks with the Spanish people, which allowed about Three million settlers from England to begin to come over and establish themselves along that Atlantic seaboard right up into about, you know, 1776. And so it's interesting. in 1607. Okay, Can you see that's about a little bit over a hundred years from when Christopher Columbus uh, first came. We have uh, the first settlement of Jamestown. Let's see that next slide. And uh, Jamestown didn't do so well because they were working under, And there's the founding of New Orleans by DeSalle, the Frenchman. I had a son who lived in New Orleans for three years. New Orleans doesn't even feel like a, an American city. It's so interesting, like a city I've never been to before. It was really fabulous. I spent a lot of time there in New Orleans. Definitely has a lot of French and Creole and Haitian influence. Okay, let's see the next slide. So Jamestown was established in 1607. Uh, King James uh, from England uh, sent off a group of people to kind of head off the Spanish Uh, And he allowed a a group of London businessmen to set up a colony there, but they operated under principles of communism. So no one was allowed to really own anything. And then 13 years later, hence come our little pilgrims. Let's see that next slide. And um, they they practiced a form of communism, but Christian communism, where they looked at each other as as all brothers and sisters, and they were gonna try and cooperate and just own everything kind of communally. But uh, that that experiment didn't go so well. William Bradford, one of the first governors of the Plymouth colony said that didn't go so well. So what he did is he gave everyone a plot of land and that went really well. People really, if you can own your labor by the sweat of your brow, that really unleashes, you know, ingenuity and creativity when you know you can own what you're working for. And so, um, oh, moms and grandmas, if I could just say, let's see the next slide, Z. We, I took all all my daughters and my son-in-law to Plymouth for Thanksgiving last November, and it was so amazing to be there, right, on Thanksgiving Day. We had dinner with the pilgrims the native the indians the native americans were on strike they are now officially woke so they were all striking so there was no native indians uh, at, at the uh, native indian campsite but um, anyways it was still a wonderful day we uh we spent several days there and there's this beautiful mayflower mother monument in the middle of plymouth and i will talk more about uh plymouth throughout the 16 weeks because there's a wonderful man named Leo Martin that has a museum in the middle of town and he and his wife have this museum and he will give private tours and public tours two and three hour tours he's in his 80s he dresses like a pilgrim and he tells the true faith stories of the um, pilgrims and Glenn Beck and and David Barton and members of Congress and Timothy Ballard. I mean, so many people have gone and done shows there at his museum, it's fabulous. So when I saw this Mayflower mother there, it just struck a a chord with me because I love the story of the mothers on the Mayflower. You know, about a hundred people came over on the Mayflower. Now these pilgrims too, felt that God had pulled them to go to this new world and take God to this new world. Because, you know, from from England, they went to Holland and because they wanted to break from the Church of England, they wanted to have, you know, they wanted to be able to worship according to how their heart felt. They didn't want to be beholden to the Church of England. So the pilgrims initially uh, would go to Holland where they were practicing, you know, uh, religious freedom, but they were concerned about the influence that their children were ha- were were being exposed to in that area and so uh, as they were prayerful about it god put it on their hearts to go to this new world and to take god to this new world and so that's the impetus and the pilgrim hypothesis by timothy ballard explains that really so beautifully but half of the people on the mayflower died that first winter and three fourths of the mothers there were 18 women on the mayflower only about four and a half survived and i think it's it's um surmised that the women didn't survive because what do mothers do with their children they give the, their last crumbs to their babies they give shelter uh, to their children they lay their bodies over these babies to keep them warm and literally these mothers sacrifice to help secure this new uh, republic that was going to be established and I often think, how how can I be a Mayflower mother today as, as I got to do something to help secure you know, or to save more, to, to save this country. So my children, my posterity, my grandchildren will, will know the freedoms and the liberties that I have known, you know, just, just as the Mayflower mothers felt inspired to do what they did. What are we being inspired as modern day Mayflowers to save this nation, so our children, our posterity, can live in a land of freedom, a godly land, where they're free to worship and live according to the dictates of their heart and their conscience. And so, anyways, that is the story of our beautiful pilgrims. And then, about ten years later. Uh, Puritans came the, pur- the our pilgrims wanted to separate they were called separatists from uh, the Church of England about 10 years later, the Puritans from England came they didn't necessarily want to separate from the Church of England. They just knew that there were mistakes they wanted to purify it. So the government they set up was the church was running the government but what that did is if there was any dissenting opinions. Uh, they were, you know, they were penalized, not penalized, they were, they were oftentimes shunned, pulled the leave or, or killed. I mean, we think of, uh, let's see the next slide of uh, people that came along at this time, Anne Hutchinson and Thomas Hooker, let's see, um, Z. We can see those next two or three slides of people that didn't necessarily agree that came over at this time during the 1600s, but didn't agree with the Puritan mindset Are you there, Z? Hello? Oh, yeah, Z. I'm losing you. you. Can you forward our. our, Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, sorry. I was frozen there for a second. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, Patterns of Liberty is another wonderful book I recommend. It's on the Moms for America store. Uh, that has great pictures of these stories of Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and our pilgrims and our founding fathers you don't have to get all these books I'm recommending mamas can you hear me see are we good yeah we can hear you I can hear you now sorry you were frozen oh how long was I frozen um not uh, (laughs) not very long long. not very long sorry 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 no you're okay Okay, you're good now. We can hear you. We can hear you. Okay, now it's very windy here, so I'm hoping everything holds up. But Mm. um, you don't have to get all the books that I recommend, but just just note them because I only recommend books that I've used in my home for years, and I like them. They have good stories. They have good pictures. So let's see the next slide, Z. Just let's get caught up on our slides here. I'm just now. Okay, so here's Anne Hutchinson and here's Thomas Hooker and we know all the witch trials occurred kind of at this time. So Thomas Hooker and and some of these that were told to Roger Williams to leave because they weren't going along with the Puritan um, uh, form of government, would go and, and found Connecticut, and Rhode Island, and set up a strong and just government, but not under the church, right? And wouldn't you know, let's see the next slide, uh, Thomas Hooker would actually write the first constitution in America. It was the first written constitution 100 years before um, uh, Thomas Jefferson would write our Declaration of Independence, and Thomas Jefferson would pull certain things out of thomas hooker's constitution for uh connecticut and and thomas hooker studied the anglo-saxons and he pulled those ancient principles of people law and embedded them in uh in the first written constitution and that's what thomas jefferson will talk about this next week And these ancient principles are found in the book of Genesis and Deuteronomy and Exodus, this representative form of government that Moses established as he led for 40 years the children out of Israel. Woo! I've told you a lot there, but just know that these ancient principles, they pulled them from scripture, all right? And Thomas Jefferson said these principles he felt would be eternal, meaning that we would use them in... Some sort of millennial reign beyond this earthlock it's fascinating and we'll study that a little bit more next week. As well, so you you need to know that all these hard won rights of the English starting you know with the Magna Carta and I kind of skipped over the petition of rights and the bill of writs, these are three freedom documents that people were hung for and beheaded for in England, but our founders would use these uh, phrases and uh, ideas and ultimately uh, to establish our uh, our freedom documents, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution And so how the Bible and biblical morality was established in America. We're going to kind of maybe end it here. There's a few more pages I haven't really covered, but I'll let you cover that. Look, the people that came to America knew that they had a sense of divine destiny. They would call it manifest destiny, where they were to be a light on a hill and an example and a blessing for the world so that all civilizations in the world might be elevated, let's see that next slide Z. Um, uh, A professor uh, Conrad uh, from the Pennsylvania State University talked about this belief that America had been providentially chosen for a special destiny. This has deep roots in the American past and is by no means a belief that has been given up in this secular age. It is at the heart of the attempt of contemporary Americans to understand this nation's responsibility at home and abroad so you need to understand that everyone, including our founders, knew they had this acute sense of divine destiny, of divine election. And um, John Winthrop, who was the first governor of that uh, Massachusetts Bay colon- colony that came in 19- uh, 1630, would say that. That the people that established this new world, this land, were going to be a light on the hill. He evoked that phrase from Matthew 5. And our our founders felt that, that they were a remnant of the house of Israel. And as they covenanted, just like Israel, you know, through the Abrahamic covenant, covenant with God and God would protect them. They felt that as they covenanted with God and and, um, agreed to live by his laws, that God would protect this nation in fact let's see the next slide z that was one of the first acts of what of uh, general washington when he was sworn in as president this is in new york city at federal hall right down the wall street area and he was sworn in in 1789 as the president of the united states and right shortly after and and the bible that he put his hands on he opened it to genesis 49 uh, verses 49 verses 22 that talks about uh joseph being a fruitful bough and whose branches would run over the wall and our founders considered us to be of that house of joseph all right that we would go beyond you know maybe the mother country so to speak so this was what the scripture that uh, george washington had open and he placed his hand on it as he was sworn in and then after he was sworn in in 1789, he and everyone that was there with him walked just a few blocks, let's see the next slide, to the St. Paul's Church in St. Paul's Church there. This is my um, sister and me and my two girls. Uh, we were there recently in New York City. And you can write your, anyways, it's, it's, these are all bucket list things you've got to do, mother. We went to St. Paul's and me and my sister holding that picture there. That's the, the site where the pew was that George Washington sat during that church service after he was sworn in. They went to church and they covenanted that they indeed would be one nation under God. And because of that, God would bless and prosper and protect them. And certainly as we had tried to stay close to God and godly laws, certainly the first 100 years of our founding, we were a very prosperous nation. Even though we had 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's goods uh, within the first 100 years living under these principles, these godly principles found in the constitution and trying to be godly and teaching our children about God in the school system. Uh, John Adams, the second president of America, would say uh, when he looked forward, he looked forward to the day, let's see that next slide, when America, the American empire would have a population between 200 and 300 freemen. Now at the time, that they signed the declaration there was about 3 million people in America but it's almost like he was prophetic john Adams that he knew that this government that they had established would would, uh, would grow to a population of two to 300 million people and what are we at we're about 320 million people we're, this is, we're living prophecy fulfilled of john Adams. And then let's do the next slide. Um, James Madison, the father of our Constitution, we love James Madison. You'll we'll learn more about him in a few weeks. He said, "Happily for Americans, happily we trust for the whole human race, they, the founders, pus- pursued a new and more noble course." Indeed. Let's see the next slide. Z. Um, uh, you know, the, these men and women that came to America, they turned on the evoked a covenant an agreement with God. And whenever you go into an agreement a covenant with God, you can take his promises to the bank. He will never, we are the ones that lead the covenant. He will never leave a covenant that his children have entered into. And how do we turn on this covenant? We pray, we serve, we follow him. We, we study his word and we follow his word. Let's add these scriptures. We know how much God loves liberty. Because he says, he tells us in Galatians to stand fast in liberty. Under an environment of liberty, that's how you can love freely. You can serve one another and you're not under the yoke of bondage, right? And then in Second Corinthians, um, so you, let's see that next slide. He says, where the spirit, where the Lord's spirit is there, the spirit of liberty is. And so... God cannot be in a condition of censorship and council culture, he needs to be an environment of freedom and liberty and that's how we will have the rights to activate the atonement, and to activate, you know, the teachings of Christ freely in our life, instead of being shut down. And so, see let's just uh let's see the next slide. I think the next slide, uh, oh yeah, it talks about the the kingdoms throughout history of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and the the last kingdom westward, the course of the empire takes us. This is Bishop George Berkeley. This is who the University of Berkeley in California was named after. But he believed this exploration of America was, you know, the the fifth. The fifth chapter of uh, this, how am I saying this? Westward, the course of empire takes its way. The first four acts already passed. A fifth shall close the drama with the day. Time's noblest offspring is the last. This fifth act, uh, Bishop uh, Berkeley considered uh, Time's noblest offspring, that it was a time Bishop Berkeley and many others believe that this is where the manifest destiny of America to inaugurate us into this great new age and to begin to elevate civilizations all around the world under these principles of liberty and freedom. Our founding fathers wanted our constitution to be a model constitution for all the world because they realized when you live under an environment of maximum freedom, you, you're able to really live the kind of life of your, of your choosing, a godly life, under the, the, the constraints of godly law And then God has to bless you when you follow him and follow follow his ways. Doesn't mean you won't have trials and struggles, but you will have that enabling power, that strength within you to forge through the hard times. Now, modern scholars clearly have scoffed at this notion. And we see these critics all the time, but our founding fathers certainly understood the providential management and the divine intervention in God's hands, And we will talk about that next week. Um, So let's see that last slide here. I hope mamas today you have seen, and that's the St. Paul's church. That's another great miracle story where uh, John Adams would say at at age 10, he became a patriot that day because the French fleet was on their way to burn the entire Eastern seaboard and a terrible hurricane came in and wiped out the French fleet. This was in, this was before they were our <laughs> allies. This was in 1756, okay? And um, and because, uh, you know, they, they didn't come and burn all the little English colonies, we were able to declare our independence in 1776 and, and that's a great story, and I will, I will tell that a little bit more, but the, the the founders knew that, you know, God's hand had been with them. John Adams saw how the storm, right that day when he sat in church, and the pastor was petitioning the heavens to save them, that this hurricane, the shutters started flapping, and right before their eyes, uh, you know, God's hand was wielded, and George Washington will say on six 66 occasions during the revolutionary war he knew god intervened and spared them and saved them from utter destruction so i hope today let's see that last slide The that you have seen god's hand in the establishment of this land is really indisputable starting with little joan of arc in france and then christopher columbus discovering and being led by the holy ghost to this land and then the pilgrims who knew that God needed them to take the knowledge of God to this new world. Now, um, and then of course, England laying the foundation with their Magna Carta and the petition of Ritz and the um, uh, petition of Ritz and the Ritz of Ritz. (laughs) All these documents that our founders would draw upon to write our our founding documents. Now, next week we will get into this and and, uh, seminar one, section two where uh, America splits from England and the birth of our new nation, the 1776 experience, and then the genius of Thomas Jefferson. Oh, we love Thomas Jefferson so much in our home and how he was able to pull out the ancient principles from the the scriptures, from the Anglo-Saxons, from Thomas Hooker's, and embed them into our uh, Declaration of Independence. I hope as you study the miracle of God's hand, in the establishment of America, that it revives your faith in God's ability to still perform miracles today. So we can scale these sometimes insurmountable mountains and enemies of freedom. We really are, Mama's having our 1776 moment. And as we do our part, as we hearken to God, as we go to God in prayer, just as uh, Joan of Arc hearkened to God, the voices from god and christopher columbus hearkened you know to the holy spirit who's leading him and as the pilgrims hearkened they were all praying people and as we continue our prayers we take our children our grandchildren to pray and not look to government or other sources for our freedom as we keep this family close as we continue to study pat yourself on the back i applaud you you we are studying together we're learning together From these original sources not modern day revisionists that don't tell these true faith stories because they want to silence the the voice of uh god they want to silence uh religious voices because they're afraid of them to be honest with you so as we continue to do these things it will anchor us we won't get depressed and discouraged and thinking all is lost and god will begin to put upon our hearts things that we can do within the four walls of our home to shore up the people that we love. The fact that you're here today in this online class, God has already spoken to you. You are doing something. And as you continue to study together, we'll talk about other things that we can do that will justify the heavens to intervene, to heal our homes, our hearts, our communities, and ultimately this nation. So that is the end of class today. Woo, can you you see why I say? Going through these classes is like uh, drinking from a fire hose. This is a a lot of material. I didn't cover it all. Please go through and and read section one again this week. And it's like going to Sunday school on Sunday. If you'll read the little Sunday school lesson before you go to class, you get more out of it on Sunday. So if you will read section two next week and fill in the blanks before we have class, it, it, it will ring a little bit more familiar to you instead of hearing it cold or, you know, for the first time in 20 or 30 years. And so that's your assignment. But even if you don't do your homework, please come online each week. We'll begin to learn and study together. I'm gonna to turn the time over to Z for any announcements and then we'll open it up for any questions that you might have as we're getting into this new Healing of America series or any comments or anything you might wanna say. Okay, see <music> you.